0: Welcome to deconstructing yourself, the podcast for meta modern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, awareness, hardcore dharma, meta systematicity, discovery, and much much more. I'm Michael your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm speaking once again with Andrew Holacek. Andrew Holacek has completed the traditional three year Buddhist meditation retreat and offers seminars internationally on meditation. Dream Yoga, and The Art of Dying. He is the author of many books, including Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Andrew is masterful at joining the wisdom traditions of Asia with the knowledge of the West. He holds degrees in classical music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery. And now, without further ado, I give you a conversation on non-duality with Andrew Polacek. Andrew, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast.
1: Michael, it's always great to hang with you, so appreciate the opportunity.
0: So as part of our pre-chat here, I learned that you have a new two-book contract with Sounds True. Congratulations.
1: Yes, I'm super psyched. I'm pitching a couple books, and uh, they got accepted about some of the stuff that maybe we can talk a little bit about today, the practice of open awareness, the narrative of contraction, and how all that connects to this thing called non-duality.
0: Certainly. Three incredibly interesting topics to me. So let's just dive right in.
1: Okay, Um, I'm all set. Let's take the plunge. Where should we go with this thing?
0: Well, of course, I want to start at the deep end, but let's not go directly to the contraction first. Let's talk about the practice of open awareness. Sure. Well, one of the reasons I'm writing these two books is to actually introduce
1: a little bit more rigorously the absolute genius of this practice. And, and maybe for your listeners, I can ping out some synonyms for it because it's called a bunch of different things. The uh, Scientists talk about it as open monitoring. It's also referred to more technically in the Buddhist tradition as non-referential shamatha. Shamatha without an object. Exactly. Shamatha without an object, shamatha without a sign, formless shamatha, awareness of awareness. It, it has a bunch of different names, and I find it an amazingly wonderful practice because it is a fantastic bridge from the formed or referential practices. And by those, what we mean, of course, are standard mindfulness practices where you have a referent like body or breath or a candle or a mantra or some other object, hence the term referential. And those are brilliantly powerful practices, but they're not the whole Shebang, the curriculum of meditations can progress into these non-referential or formless meditations. And these become really interesting, Michael, as you know, in things like deep dreamless sleep yoga practices, if you believe in sort of bardo yoga things, which you can be aware of when you actually don't have a body. So it gets pretty esoteric. But I love them because they're not quite the full-blown nature of mind utter non-dual meditations, but they are what those practices degenerate into. And therefore they can act as a bridge into those formal practices. And that's where we can talk a little bit about their utility as practices that might my, my languaging here that leave the most breadcrumbs. In other words, people go to these transmission events and they sometimes get a Shaktipat or a pointing out transmission or an Abhishek or an empowerment and they might have a glimpse of the natural state of so-called non-duality, but then what now? What do I do with that? And so the open awareness practice I've discovered is a marvelous practice that leaves a lot of these breadcrumbs where you can kind of find your way back. There are ways that you can do a combination of open receptivity conjoined with a little bit of kind of analytic meditation within them. That's also what makes them unique. There's ways to kind of massage that practice where you can use incisive analytic Vipassana type insight meditations as a way to find your way back to this thing called non duality So that's
0: why I'm just the bottom. Yeah, this is essentially the core of what I'm teaching all the time. So as you're describing this, I'm just like, yes, yes, this is good stuff. So on the other hand, I'm cognizant that you just tossed in about 15 jargon terms that are kind of hard to understand if you're not already tuned into this Way of working. So let's unpack those a little bit if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, excellent. So within the Buddhist kind of approach, and that's my primary background, Tibetan Buddhism, they subsume all their meditations really within the two big umbrella terms shamatha or quiescent tranquility, kind of sedation meditations, and then vipassana in Sanskrit or vipassana in Pali, the insight meditations. And both of these are, as you know, Michael, these are called, they're multivalent or polysimous terms. In other words, they have a lot of different meanings. So you have the same word like vipassana that can refer to a lot of different things depending on the context. And so the practice of open awareness is a wonderful, I'm not sure hybrid meditation is the best word, but it encompasses both practices. That On one level, it is a type of shamatha. It is a a quiescent practice, a tranquility practice. But at the same time, you can introduce an analytic meditation, which is also a part of the Vipassana insight meditation family. And this is, I think, doubly interesting for Westerners, because we like to be a little bit more analytic, at least the scientific type, where we have recourse to the refined analysis of the conceptual mind, insights that's brought about through analysis. The Dalai Lama, so many teachers talk a great deal about this type of analytic meditation where you can take, you know, colloquially something like anger and really just take it apart in a really healthy reductionist sense, like what happens when you take very close look at at anger. And so in this case, what we're doing is we're taking a very close look at perception, a very close look at awareness. And in so doing, in the narrative of your program, we can deconstruct this thing called self. We can, and then by immediate implication, we deconstruct other, and we can also deconstruct into its irreducible terms, the whole perceptual apparatus and what it means to perceive and how we can therefore transition from dualistic forms of perception to non-dualistic forms of perception. How do you see in a non-dualistic way? And so I think that's, again, part of the genius, at least the way I negotiate the practice of open awareness is it conjoins both of those that on one level yes you can just completely open your mind relax my favorite definition of meditation by the way habituation to openness you can just do that in a certain way that will take you to that same place that perhaps we can talk about but it also provides a platform for this more incisive analytic look in terms of what's really taking place when you hear a sound for instance when you perceive to any of your senses, what's actually taking place there. And in looking in this way, you really can deconstruct the perceptual apparatus. It's like returning to the construction site, the kind of the blueprints that create the sense of self and reality altogether. And that's again, why I think this practice is just so undervalued, or maybe even under advertised, you could say, that there's so much here, as you know, is worth talking about.
0: Yeah, something I find very fascinating is that oftentimes There are traditions that are so focused on this practice that they drop people off in the deep end, like, (laughs) okay, just start here. And, And of course, if you take the average modern Westerner whose mind is just spinning a thousand miles an hour with two billion different distractions continuously, dropping them off and saying, okay, well, just hang out with no meditation object really often leads to you know a lot of time spent just confused about what's going on here. Totally. I could not agree
1: more. That's an excellent point. And it's interesting because it's a little bit like the approach that a lot of teachers when they first came to the West from the so-called East had this kind of Nike approach, right? Just do it. Just rest in the nature of mind, this formless thing. And they're so formless there's no hitching post, there's no reference. And for the highly referential ego, I mean, that's what ego is. Ego is is this kind of referential apparatus. There's a whole lot of floundering that takes place when people do this practice without the proper, either preparation with the referential practices or exactly what we're talking about here, a view that really helps you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. And what does it mean to, like, accomplish this meditation? So I completely agree with you. And that's one reason I'm writing these two books, is that these practices are so nuanced, they're so subtle, they're so quiet, that when you're plunged into this deep end of such quiescence and silence, that sometimes people, they flounder a little bit, they get lost, they're faking it, they don't know what to do. Totally normal. But then slowly, once you get the hang of it, because again, what these practices eventually lead you to is, in fact, the natural state. Well, on one level, it's only because we're so unnatural that this practice does itself feel unnatural, but fundamentally, it is really a segue into the nature of mind itself.
0: And so why don't you talk about those two things in your mind? What's your version of the correct view for doing this practice? And also, how do you know when it's working?
1: Yeah, really well said. So let's start with the first part. The correct way for doing it, again, is engaging with the preliminary practices in the Tantric traditions, there's an adage, which I think is really worth paying allegiance to, where they say the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. And this is important for Westerners because we're an impatient lot. We want to rush to the goodies and get to graduate school before we've gone through grade school. And so therefore, this practice needs to be properly contextualized, precisely why I'm writing this book. Where does it fit in to the vast array of meditations, how does one go about it? And so in the briefest kind of preparatory way, to do it properly, I think one has to have some facility with the referential meditations, the capacity to come back, the body and breath, to settle the mind, like you're talking about earlier, when the mind comes in, untamed, untrained, speedy, traffic jammed, it's gonna completely stampede over the nuance of this practice. And so therefore, when I present it, especially in a retreat setting, there's usually a couple days of just classic shamatha mindfulness, settling, taming, quieting the mind, because otherwise that waterfall just runs right over the whole thing. And then eventually when the mind is settled, what I recommend people do is just for the purposes of contrast. And that's the other thing that's worth throwing into the mix here, Michael. Is that one of the things that I've discovered that so many meditations really do is they create heightened contrast mediums, backgrounds that, in a kind of gestalt figure ground arena, really allow us to see things we've never seen before. And so, two things to say here. When you work, for instance, with the practice of referential meditation, you're basically sitting in stasis, you know, silent body, spacious mind, silent speech. And that contrast of stasis and stability kind of acts to flush out the camouflage, to remove the camouflage of movement that allows us to then therefore better see, in fact, the movement of the mind. And by that, what I mean is we generally don't see how busy and distracted and wild our mind really is, because it's lost in the camouflage of daily activity. And so when you sit in meditation, this creates a new contrast medium of stasis. That allows you to see the movement of your mind. So it's both diagnostic and prescriptive, right? Exactly the same thing happens with the practice of open awareness. By inviting the mind to open, and I'll say more about that, to such a degree that invitation to openness creates a new contrast medium that allows us to better see contraction. All the ways that we grasp, solidify, reify, contract onto our experience. To fundamentally create, like I mentioned at the outset, the illusion of self and other and all the suffering that then ensues. So with that as a background, you settle the mind down with the meditations. At a certain point, you feel somewhat gathered and settled. And then I always do this starting with the eyes closed, again, for purposes of contrast. And then really, you open your eyes, you slowly raise your gaze. And I always invite a somatic exploration here, which is revelatory. It's like, how does this feel to you? Does it feel inviting, refreshing, even liberating? Or does it somehow feel threatening? Is being this open somehow violating your personal space? So that's a very interesting set of investigations to register without judgment. So you raise your gaze, you look straight ahead, Decentralize your visual focus, and I always say here, you know, focus, quote unquote, on the periphery, which invites a very interesting correlation between the dilation of the physical eye to the dilation of consciousness itself, to the dilation of expansion of the mind. So we use the physical eye to invite a quality of the mind's eye. I invite people to relax their jaw, that drops open, release the referent of body and breath. It's like body-mind dropped in sand, you drop that anchor. And then you allow the mind to just have a pasture, as Suzuki Roshi says. You set the mind free. And then this is where it gets really interesting. And then it's like, okay, well, now what do I do? So the mind is just free to roam. And the invitation is let it go. Let it roam to, let's say, for instance, sensory input in terms of sound. So you're sitting in meditation. You might hear, well, let's say a dog's barking. Your awareness goes to the sound of the dog barking. The practice is to alight on that perception and to notice how then sticky the mind is, right, Michael? The mind sticks to the sound and then it proliferates. Propancha in Sanskrit, conceptual proliferation. So the mind sticks and then it proliferates. And it's like, why does my neighbor's dog have to bark so loud? I don't like my neighbor. Geez, that reminds me I didn't cut the grass. Blah, blah, blah. You're lost in distraction. What do you do then? Well you rest on that, that becomes your new object of meditation. In other words, the mind now rests on that sensory input. And so the really brilliant thing about this, and then I'll pause for a second, because there is more to say, the great thing about this is in the previous practice, you could be distracted, you could be interrupted. In this practice, distraction becomes your meditation. This is what I playfully refer to as industrial strength meditation nothing can interrupt this practice because interruption becomes your practice. And I can say more a little bit about how that then transitions into more like the investigation and the nuances of how this can then lead to non-duality. But let me pause for a second and make sure we're heading in the right direction.
0: We're definitely heading in the right direction. Something I find interesting is that This is a different practice that you're describing than what I would call shamatha without an object. So we've already run into what you were describing as the multivalency of these terms, right? Because it's just an interesting thing in this field that the same terms get used over and over and over in very different ways.
1: Can I ask you, Michael, I'm very curious. What are the differences from what I just said from your understanding of the term or the practice?
0: Yeah, well, you know, you're describing an awesome meditation that I totally love doing. However, those are still objects. And so to me, shamatha without an object is true, like remain uninvolved, don't grab onto any objects at all, just having awareness rest in itself. Yeah, that's where I was heading. Which is a different practice, right? Well,
1: maybe. Let me say a little bit more and we'll see. So when we return, let's see if we're talking about the same thing. So what I invite here then is when the mind rests on sensory input, the fundamental instruction, just like I think you're intimating, is this kind of ultimate democracy or equanimity of the mind. In other words, the mind is simply then invited to rest a light ever so briefly, without sticking, upon whatever arises. And we think initially, and this is where the investigation comes into play, we think in an unexamined way that, yes, my mind is resting on the object, in this case, the sound, sound of the dog. Well, either through the natural practice itself, without the analysis, which sometimes happens, but again, I like the analytic interjection for those who roll this way, you can take a slightly closer look and say, okay, well, let's take a look at this. What is my mind actually really resting on? It seems to be resting upon this thing, this particular sound, and then therefore the instantaneous reference to an object, the dog that brings it about. But what I invite here, and this is where it ties into this notion of attraction, is what I invite people to take a very close look at, and again, another somatic invitation, because eventually this is not something that you just cognitively perceive. This is something that you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And by that, what I mean is you will notice eventually, spoiler alert, that the mind is actually involved in a very subtle contraction, lightning fast. It happens so fast, Michael, that we can have an example right here that basically the fundamentally neutral sound waves from my voice, which are basically, as you know, compression and rarefaction waves that carry no inherent meaning. Well, we have been so conditioned to bring meaning through language that you don't hear these sound waves as neutral sound waves. You hear them, in fact, as language imbued terms filled with meaning. As quickly as I utter a word, you instantaneously bring meaning to it. That's how fast this takes place at these unconscious levels. But the invitation is that when you take a really close look, you will actually notice that when the mind is actually setting ever so lightly on top of these sensory stimuli, that we immediately append names and languages and proliferate on, you'll notice a very subtle contraction taking place that actually the contraction of which generates the illusion that there is a thing, a sound, or secondary, tertiary, the dog and everything else. And so this is where the deconstruction process comes back into play. You actually start to realize that that level of contraction is fundamentally, and this is where I think maybe we're talking about similar aspects, The contraction is fundamentally onto nothing, awareness, formless awareness itself. It's the contraction itself that creates the illusion that there is a thing. And so this is how you deconstruct externality, thingness altogether, and then kind of back your way into the truth of awareness of awareness, that that's fundamentally all there is. Initially seems to be awareness of object. But it's not. It's a little bit like what the Hindus have. Vaita Vedanta has this wonderful kind of triptych of progression of practices that initially is appearance arising to consciousness, appearance arising in consciousness. And then where we're going here is appearance arising as consciousness slash awareness. And that is exactly the progression that this practice invites. Initially, you feel it's aware appearing to then appearing in, and then finally appearing as. And when it makes that colossal but very subtle, very nuanced transition from appearance in to appearance as, that's when you make the transition from even open awareness to the full-blown formless practices, as you know, in Buddhism of Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and the like. So I'm not sure if that helps clarify perhaps some of the connections between what I'm calling this practice and what you are. And if not, I'd love to hear what the differences are for you.
0: Yeah, there's just some difference of vocabulary. You know, so it's very similar in terms of what needs to happen. Just how we're describing doing it is a little different. Yeah, in order to
1: really tease this apart, we'd probably have to go into the weeds pretty thickly. And I'm not sure that's where we really need to go at this point. I think to me, it's more unpacking some of the implications that I was alluding to earlier about how. Yeah, let's go there. Yeah, how we can deconstruct this notion of duality altogether and lead to, you know, what I refer to as the primordial contraction. Because to me, contraction itself is a marvelously powerful explanatory tool. The fundamental generative impulse, as I've come to discern it over decades of practice, of what creates fundamentally all our suffering and especially this takes on additional attraction when we realize that a colloquial expression of contraction of course is grasping and so for me it's like we're talking about let's go back to the meditation so you're involved with sound or sight or any other thing and there may be and this is what the first part of this appearing to consciousness usually is this unexamined kind of given or axiom that we may not have thought about it, but this practice invites the investigation that I am hearing that, right? I'm perceiving that sound. And what this practice then leads to is that not only by inviting such a degree of openness, this contraction help us understand how contraction generates the illusion of externality object or whatever, but because you can't have self without other, they co-emerge. By immediate implication, and I love the play on words here, this contraction gives birth to twins. One contraction, two births. You contract to generate the illusion of externality. And then by immediate implication, that outside has to imply an inside. And so this is the kind of the subversive covert motivation behind this level of contraction, that we contract as if our lives depended on it, because on one level they do. Egoic life lives on this narrative of contraction, because that's what ego is. Ego is the embodiment of this contraction narrative. And so this is where the practice gets really devastatingly powerful, that you can sit in meditation, do this investigation, do this resting. And that's the way I work with it, Michael, is this kind of this oscillation or almost pulsating of awareness, where on one level, the openness is really the key ingredient, the expansion. And yet there is invited this invitation, this kind of one-pointed, incisive, refined investigation. And so the way I work with it is, in fact, it's kind of pulsating. The Hindu tradition talks about Mm -hmm. it as spanda, you know, the doctrine of vibration, extrapolating on that a little bit. The mind pulsates, it it opens, and then it gets very one-pointed and becomes very incisive. But eventually, it doesn't matter which way you do it, either through incisive, one-pointed analysis or through expansive open awareness Fundamentally, the dissolution takes place either way. Externality is dissolved, deconstructed. And then again, by immediate implication, so is the sense of subjectivity within. And then, of course, what that leads to is this so-called non-duality that fundamentally you realize, as we talked about earlier, there really is just awareness aware of itself. That's all there ever is. And this is where we can plop, if you like, into the really deep end of the pool, how this relates to the deepest teachings really in Hinduism and Buddhism as I've come to understand it. And some of the most sophisticated Western philosophies, idealism and the like, idealistic schools have a lot to say here. The whole notion of reality of being of the nature of mind, awareness, consciousness, whatever you want to call it. That's why I love this practice, because it really brought to this level of fruition, maturation. It can take you into the full-blown nature of mind and reality.
0: Yeah, and that becomes really interesting. We can presume that the human brain is more or less similar in people, and that in different places, at different times, various meditators, various spiritual people, or maybe sometimes just inadvertently or accidentally because it's there to be bumped into people— Discover this aspect of their own awareness that's always present, but we're just not that used to noticing. Right. And so we find that all over Asia, but even all over the world, people have been talking for thousands of years about this particular aspect of the mind or particular aspect of our experience that you can notice. I'll put it almost everything we say here will be kind of wrong. You know? so I'll just say is either happening in awareness or is made of awareness, or you, you said as awareness. Just to put it simply, everyone is having a non-dual experience, and yet then the kind of sense they make out of that in different traditions is actually pretty different, which I find very fascinating. So just with that as a setup, take it away. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, a couple of things came up there. One that really struck me that you said at the outset was how it is that different traditions throughout the world and throughout history have discovered this. And I I think that's quite important. What I mean is that what this practice will lead you to is literally the revelation, the discovering, the uncovering of the natural state.
0: Yeah, it's not something that we're generating or creating. It's something we're, like, recognizing.
1: Exactly. The process of recognition is really it. And again, this is really important to me because it can really challenge the notion of path altogether, that on one level, at these more refined spiritual dimensions, path is contraindicated, a path to where, a path to nowhere, a path to now here journey without distance. And and this is important for us because what I've come to determine is the irreducible instruction on the path, really. And that is, if you follow the logic behind this, this is in fact the natural state. How can you attain something you already have? The process is one of openness and relaxation. It's literally waking down, dropping down into the natural state. And so this to me is fabulous because It empowers the immediacy of this entire business that on one level, so many of us think that somehow, if maybe if we're lucky, if we do all these retreats, and at some fortuitous time in the future, we will attain this thing called enlightenment. And we unwittingly defer our awakening, or as I playfully put it, we schedule our appointment with reality. And so... What this does for me is really very practical and very empowering. It really points out to me the immediacy of the awakened state and what it is that we're looking for. What we're looking for is actually hiding in plain sight. Like it says in the Mahamudra tradition, it's so obvious we don't see it, so simple we don't believe it, so easy we don't trust it. And so if you really take the right view that these teachings bring about, and that's why right view, the preliminaries are so important then you realize, oh my gosh, this could not be simpler. But simpler doesn't mean easy because we're not human beings, we're human doings. And so really what meditation is at this level is really the art of doing nothing, but doing it well, doing it appropriately, relaxing. And then you'll discover to your utter amazement that what you've been looking for is closer to the inside of your eyelid. It's always been 100% in front of you all the time. There is only nirvana. Samsara is just partial or no recognition of nirvana. There's only the awakened state. Confusion is just lack of recognition of that. And so this is where the non-dual traditions, this is their radical proclamation. The challenges that really decimates, talk about deconstruction, Michael. This deconstructs the very notion of path itself. The path can actually imply seeking, striving that pulls you away from that which you're actually trying to to seek, which is actually the seeker or awareness itself. And so I'll pause here for a second, but I think for the deeper divers, this is really pretty important. And it helps us chill. It helps us relax and open and realize, my gosh, everything under any circumstance is already it. There's nothing but it. And so I need to just simply recognize that, right?
0: Well, and the thing that we're recognizing is not a state. It's not a special state and it's not a particular formulation of thoughts and feelings. And this in my own journey or non-journey or whatever, <laughs> this was the hardest thing to grok even though I got told this probably a hundred million times still there's just such a strong habit of seeing states as important and even highly refined and highly simplified and relaxed and even open states, but still states as being the thing. Like there's a way your body's going to be and a way your mind's going to be and a way your feelings are going to be. And that's the state of awakening or that's going to be you know, imagine like some kind of super version of that that's going to be the enlightenment or the liberation state and of course what this is saying that it's not a state of body or mind at all if we're looking at the contents of thoughts if we're looking at the contents of feelings and we expect our liberation to be some special arrangement of that we're just completely lost Totally. I am so glad you brought this up, Michael. This is such an important
1: point. That really, by definition, states are always temporary. And we can become as ecstatic as these states are, and some of them truly are. If we don't understand and have a proper relationship to these states, which again, they have provisional validity, as in fact does any state of consciousness. But if we don't relate to them properly, we become state junkies we think, yes, I need to reestablish my definition of awakening, which was this kind of blissful, ecstatic state. Well, oh my gosh, you're so shortchanging, the immediacy of this, that what we're looking for, again, is not a state. It's not even an experience. It's the groundless ground of all these states. It's unbelievably ordinary. In fact, in Tibetan, the word is Tamil gishepa, which literally means ordinary mind. And so this is fantastically powerful in terms of like imbuing the tantric traditions where one of the characteristics of tantra is body is as important as mind. That fundamentally, body here means materialism. What we know or think of as materialism is as important as the mind here. And in fact, what it does is it completely destroys this notion of materialism, realizing fundamentally that even that is a particular state of mind. So what you're saying here is incredibly important thing, that if we're not careful, we can become a god addict, we can become a state junkie, we can become addicted to these spiritual delicacies because they feel so good as degrees of openness counter distinction to contraction then of course the near enemy of this practice and this is where this thing can really get interesting is we tend to assume even by implication from what i've been discussing that somehow openness is somehow preferred over contraction well provisionally yes provisionally that's a state of openness but here's the point if you can't find the ultimate democracy between openness and contraction if you can't find your heaven in hell then your heaven is incomplete your awakening is incomplete and so what i love about this is it empowers quote unquote materialism it empowers matter it empowers the earth it empowers the body to realize that the divinity is within the profanity that if we really look closely at anything that arises we realize it's all perfectly pure it's all divine it's all Basically, good, whatever term you want to use from every tradition, it's the awakened state. And so, this is such an important point that whatever comes and arises can't be it. It's still a state. We're looking at the background of all those states and realizing the utter immediacy, having no preference for openness and contraction, realizing that actually thinking that way can send you also in the wrong direction. Because if you're heading towards the state of openness, thinking, well, that's it. Well, then what do you do with your contraction? Can we, in fact, find the openness in the contraction? Can we find the spirit in matter? Can we find the silence in the noise, the stillness in the motion? That's where this practice takes you to this ultimate equanimous relationship to whatever arises in the phenomenal world. And this is a colossal thing. This is a really big achievement, or I should say recognition.
0: One of the things I find so interesting here is, as I was saying, just the sense then that different traditions make out of this. For example, in Advaita Vedanta, which is one form of Hindu non-dualism, there's a bunch of forms of it, but a really common form is Advaita Vedanta. There's a real sense of denial of the world in favor of this absolute consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree
1: more with you because I think, again, these absolutistic approaches, that's a colossal near enemy of these formless meditations is somehow thinking that formlessness is it, that if I can just dissolve into this no thingness, that's it. Well, like I alluded to, that's part of it. But if you think it's all of it, then that's classic spiritual bypassing. That's just your comfort plan. Being translated into spiritual terms. And so that's a really important thing because these practices do invite tremendous degrees of openness. And interestingly enough, Michael, the degree of ecstasy that one feels in relation to this openness is directly proportional to the preceding level of agony or contraction. This is really important because when people in the West, oh my goodness, when people have, and I could name so many names, when these sudden realizers in the West have these grand ecstatic experiences, I don't contest those experiences at all. They're having them, of course. The reason they come across initially as so ecstatic is simply because of the preceding level of contraction or agony. Suzuki Roshi said it beautifully when when he said enlightenment was my biggest disappointment. In other words, he was already so open. He was already so relaxed that in quite a literal sense, it was the ultimate letdown He was just relaxed into that dimension of reality and so this is important because if you think again that these ecstatic states are it you're really barking up the wrong tree those ecstatic states are brought about simply by levels of contraction that precede them and this then points to what we've been talking about all along that fundamentally what we're looking for can be found under any condition under any state under any circumstance which of course is completely what we've been saying. That's all there ever is anyway, right? So I wanted to put a little exclamation point on that because otherwise, oh my goodness, we all run after these spiritual candies, these spiritual sweets, looking for these ecstatic states and get caught in all these absolutistic escape modalities. Say, oh yes, I'm just going to dissolve into Buddhist languaging, the dharmakaya, the dharmadhatu these formless dimensions. But that's only half of it. That's in perennial philosophy language, that's just the evolutionary arc, right? It's just transcendental, yeah. Exactly. So then what happens to the involutionary arc? What happens to embodiment, to, to form, to body? And so very briefly, what we do on the path provisionally is we differentiate, not dissociate, from all these levels of form... Because that's what ego is. Ego is exclusive identification with form. So we die to let go, differentiate from that, to return to the formless matrix of reality. Then the point is not to rest in absolute peace there, no. The point then is to take voluntarily. Take that insight, take that formless awareness, and now you shape it, you incarnate that voluntarily. You come back into thought voluntarily. You come back into body, into form, into action voluntarily. You express your emptiness as compassion. This is really important because otherwise, just like you're saying, you get into this kind of sterile, disembodied approach to spirituality and enlightenment that then basically will FedEx you out of the world. And right now, what we're talking about is not waking up and out. It's about waking down and in, taking your realization, divine as it is, and riveting it back into reality, into the world as we know it. And so I wanted to just put an exclamation point on that because so many people really tend to get a little bit lost, and me included. I mean, I've had these delicious states, and they can become tai situ. says, the great Tibetan master, these are among the most dangerous of all spiritual traps because they're so spiritually delicious. And so that's worth really emphasizing. We have to be a little bit wary about that.
0: You know, when people hear the central metaphor or one of the central metaphors of this way of working, that the world is a dream and we need to wake up from the dream and so on, it does tend to often point to this kind of absolutism, right? Like, oh, the world is just a dream and we're just going to wake up from that dream into this awareness heaven where that dream is gone. And so how do you... Andrew, talk about that metaphor in a way that includes the richness and variability and wonderful, I'll just say a duality of form that is then included in the non-duality of absolute and form.
1: Another really great question. For sure, isn't it true that when people say something like, even colloquially, it's just a dream, right? That's, again, a dismissive statement, a pejorative statement. But on one level, there's provisional validity that, dismissing materialism is a healthy thing to do. Dismissing physicalism is a healthy thing to do. When we start talking at these levels, the nuance of language, the importance of language, the reference points, because even like we talked about earlier, even though you may be using the same word, signifier, it does not always imply the same signify. We've already seen this when you talk about Vipassana, what type of Vipassana are you talking about? So the reason I mention this here is the way I use the word dream, it's like code language for me. It's another one of these kind of multivalent terms that has a number of different meanings depending on the context. For me, the, the most foundational definition of dream, and this really solves many of the issues, is dream is fundamentally a manifestation of mind. And so when we look at it within that arena, now that's a bit of a game changer because now basically what happens is In fact, this is what the Buddha woke up from and what he woke up to, right? In many ways, the historical Buddha was the ultimate lucid dreamer. But what did he wake up from? Well, he woke up from the nightmare of duality, the nightmare of reification, the nightmare of a solidified, solid, lasting, independent world. That's what he woke up from. What did he wake up to? He woke up to a de-reified reality, emptiness. He woke up to a reality that is fundamentally illusory in nature. And so when we start using these terms, maya, illusion, we have to be very precise and very careful. What exactly are we referring to when we say the world is illusion, the world is illusory? Well, what it really implies here, illusion, in this case, is not dismissive. It's, It's a challenging statement that basically says appearance is not in harmony with reality. What you perceive is illusory because it's not real. That's the nightmare to which we can append the label dream. So I'll pause and see if that's a little bit helpful. I think that's really, for me, a key insight that then also brings increased kind of credibility to things like dream yoga, that when you're working with dream yoga, it is so much more than just working with your mind as you sleep and dream. It's basically using what the Tibetans refer to, and I love this phrasing, the example dream or the double delusion isn't that interesting they refer to the nighttime dream as the double delusion the example dream from which we can extrapolate profound insights through the practice of lucidity to bring those same insights back to bear on the primary dream which is this so-called waking reality and so i'll pause to see if this is landing with you and if you want to go further into the brief kind of contemplation that perhaps we could leave your readers with or listeners with.
0: Yeah, let's go into the the dream contemplation. That sounds really interesting here. This is something that, in my
1: experience, has to be repeated. On one, working through it, the insights may not completely land. But I love this particular contemplation because you don't have to be a dream yoga practitioner to do this. You simply have to, again, do a little bit of analytic meditation and just simply take a closer look at things. And so there's so many different ways to discuss this. But basically, one way to look at it is when you're in a dream, so just recall any dream. It doesn't have to be a lucid one. Just bring to mind any dream. When you're in that dream, there's this unquestioned, you know, this assumption that there's you, the dreamer in the dream, and there's the dream itself. There's subject dreamer, object dream and then some kind of consciousness between the two. We've never really perhaps looked at that, but I think most people would acknowledge that. And they even say things like, yes, I had that dream, I'm having that dream. And when you're lost in a non-lucid dream, this is, again, given, this is just the way it perceives, the way you perceive appearances. There's something appearing on the screen of the mind that we call the dream, I'm perceiving it. Well, is that really what's taking place? Let's take a closer look. When you wake up from that double delusion, the example dream into this now in waking reality, we're listening to this podcast. Now the invitation is from this stance, let's look back on that nighttime dream and see if in fact, what we thought was axiomatic a given isn't in fact the case, or is that illusory from this perspective with a little bit of examination, we can take a closer look and come to the following insights. We can say, Yes, we can't deny, without a doubt, there's a dream. I had the dream content, I remember the dream, I can visualize it, I can remember it. You can't contest the appearance of the dream. But from this perspective, you can contest the fact of the dualistic nature of that and deconstruct the notion that in fact there was a dreamer. So from this perspective, Michael, look back is a thought experiment or dream experiment, in fact, the next time you have a lucid dream, you can do this in living real time as dream yoga. But we can do it now. Look back and say, yes, there's a dream object, for sure. Can't deny that. But where exactly is the dream subject? Where is the dreamer? And this is where you have to pause and take a really good, hard look. Take your flashlight and look. I love Daniel Dennett uses the phrase the Cartesian theater, right? The dualistic theater theater. Take the flashlight of your awareness. Look into the back rows of your dreaming mind and try to find the dreamer. If you do this with real honest rigor, and this is where the investigation, you have to really do it. I can deliver the punchline, but the punchline has no impact unless you do the examination yourself. You will discover that there is no dreamer. There is no dreamer there. You can't find one. That's emptiness, empty of the dreamer. Yet there is some manifest display. There's something taking place there. Well, based on that, then who is perceiving what? There's no dreamer. There does seem to be a dream appearance. But if you don't have a dream or a dream appearance, what happens to consciousness? Even consciousness that seems to connect those two isn't there. On another level, consciousness doesn't connect, consciousness separates. So the radical conclusion here, Michael, and if you work with this, this is a mind bender. This is what's called threefold purity. Threefold impurity is subject, object, connecting consciousness. That's the way we perceive the dream. That's the way we perceive the world around us right now, threefold impurity. What this points to is threefold purity. There is no dream subject. There is a provisional so-called dream object, that's in quotes, there is no consciousness connecting the two, but yet there's something still there. What the heck is going on? Who is perceiving what? Well, the dream is appearing to itself. The dream is aware of itself. This is non-dualistic perception. This is non-dualistic knowing. On a certain level, like they say with quantum mechanics, if you're not shocked by the implications of quantum mechanics, you don't understand it. On another level, this is a real discovery of the teachings on emptiness. If you're not shocked by the discovery of this on one level, I would argue perhaps you don't get it or you've already gotten it previously. So this to me is a wonderful way, and I'll pause here, to work with what we're talking about in a contemplative way through reiterative analysis and investigation, come to this conclusion of what it means to see the world in this non-dualistic way. Then you take the insights... Gleamed from this investigation using the double delusion or the example dream, you take those exact same insights and then you extend them to this. And you say, well, wow, holy moly, I see the world right now in exactly the same way. There is a subject, there is an object, there's consciousness connecting the two. Well, the only reason we haven't made the same insights we made in terms of the nocturnal dream is simply because we haven't found the same perspective that we bring to the nighttime dream from which we can look on this dream and say, oh my gosh, it's exactly the same way right now. So I'll pause because I want to make sure this is sort of landing with you. I find this to be one of the most insightful contemplations that I can do repeatedly that really brings some compelling insights.
0: So two things there. One is just to unpack the idea of the double delusion, right? The regular waking world, is delusion one, and then within the quote-unquote real world, then we're having a dream at night, and that's delusion two. Right, So it's sort of the second layer of delusion. However, I want to get to the nut of the practice, the real core, which is we're sitting there in the daytime thinking about a dream that occurred, recalling a dream that occurred at night, and if I'm not mistaken, we're trying to find more or less, who's having the dream. Correct. And we just look as carefully as we can at the memory of the dream and try to find like the dream subject. Correct. And the way I understand what you're saying, we're not doing this analytically in the sense of we're not trying to figure it out like some kind of logic puzzle. We're just directly looking with that other kind of Vipassana analysis, just directly looking, trying to find who's this character in the dream.
1: Totally. And again, I'm going to bring this even more immediate. So that's exactly right. You totally got it. And what they say in, in the wisdom traditions around this is not finding is the best finding. Again, in, in traditional languages, this is called yogic direct valid cognition. It's not inference. It's not logic. This is direct yogic perception. So let's close with something that's even more immediate, Michael, that makes it's the same exercise that we can do like even more immediately, and that is look at the contents and the display of your mind right now. We have this unexamined assumption that I'm having a thought. It's exactly the same phenomenology. You can't deny this appearance. There is this quote unquote thing called thought. Where is the thinker? Take a look, pause take a really good hard look and try to find the thinker. You will, if you do this with honest, rigorous investigation, you will find that there isn't one. I mean, Mark Epstein wrote this beautiful book called Thoughts Without a Thinker. There is no thinker, just like there is no dreamer. But there is still this phenomenal display called thought. Well, here again, who is knowing what? It's only the lightning fast contraction that refers the display of either the dream or the thought to nothing. The contraction of which creates the illusion that there is something. In other words, the very contraction that I'm having that thought, that very contraction, that's what generates the illusion that there is a thinker and that there is a dreamer. And so either through the meditation or through this contemplation, You can dissolve that. You can take a very hard look and you go, oh, my goodness. You get a little shudder and a shiver up your spine. I can't find the thinker because there isn't one. There is no fundamental self, but yet the thoughts still appear. And in exactly the same way, what's the kind of epistemological phenomenology using big fancy terms? The thought knows itself. And then you take that again, extrapolate that to this, A little bit deeper exercise because the habit patterns are more deeply entrenched and also affected by collective karma, collective habits. Same thing takes place when you look, open your eyes, look at the world around you, and you say, I am seeing that. No, you're not. Tat Tvam Asi. Thou art that.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Andrew.
1: Michael, it's always such a delight. I love your questions. We really go to the deep end Pretty quickly, and I hope he didn't drown anybody, but it's so much fun to talk to you, my friend.
0: <laughs> you too. Have a great <laughs> one.
1: Take yeah, care. Bye now.
0: That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself.